Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In this episode, we hear from Alistair McLeod, who is now the head of research for gold money. He's a stockbroker bringing over four decades of experience as a member of the London Stock Exchange. From his early days as a fisherman on the coast of England to the brokerage houses of London's global financial district, his experience spans numerous bull markets and bear markets, which the likes many of the younger generations have yet to see. He's worked in equities, bonds, and fund management, corporate finance, and investment strategy. Needless to say, he has tons of experience in the world of the financial markets. In this episode, he shares this experience, his stories of a celebrated career, and his views on the current financial system. This is a great interview. Enjoy the show. Alistair, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on it. What I can tell from the five minutes we've been speaking before clicking record here, I think that there's a very interesting conversation to come, but I think probably the best way for our listeners is, can you give us a background on your 40 years on what is the markets or 40 years in the markets? Yeah, I actually left salmon fishing as a business to go into the stock market. Well, salmon fishing was lovely, but you know it didn't tax the intellect too much. So I thought okay. I'd go and try some stockbroking. And I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed it. That was back in 1970. And I walked straight into the aftermath of the Australian nickel boom. These were shares, Poseidon, Tasman X, and so on. And I mean, Poseidon had run up in the space of about six months, less than six months, three months, I think, from considerably less than the pound. I mean, in, in old money, we were talking about two and six, which is about 15p, and hit a high of 120 pounds a share. And that was that was my first bubble experience, if you like. So mm. that was interesting. We then had the most major bear market we have ever seen because the London Stock Exchange Index, which in those days was the FT30 index, which was very much like the Dow 30, that peaked, I think, in May 72, and it lost over 70% of its value between then and the first days of 1975. And along the way, we had a major property crisis, which was known today as the secondary banking crisis. Basically, it took out the banks who had lent money to commercial property developers. And that was, I can tell you, a major, major experience. I mean, I remember seeing major property shares, companies, their shares falling by 90% in the space of two or three days. I mean, it really was quite, quite something. I made quite a lot of money trading on the bear tack then, but it was so, so quiet. I mean, nobody wanted to deal in stocks and shares. So as a stockbroker, you spent most of your time either over the road from the stock market, enjoying a coffee or a gin and tonic or whatever, (laughs) the liver, or just dealing for your own account. And in those days, you could easily short something and you didn't have to put anything up. 
basically what happened is that you would be pressed for delivery eventually uh, mm. through the market. And when that happened, you merely closed the position. So it was quite easy but for a stockbroker to, to deal on the bear tack in those days. And then, of course, we had Big Bang, which was a major, major change in the whole thing. It meant that stockbroking firms attracted outside capital. It meant that instead of as a partner, which I was in the firm at that stage, instead of having unlimited liability, which was, it was a very good discipline on, on stockbroking partnerships. I mean, it really right. was. Instead of unlimited liability, we were able to form limited liability companies so that we no longer had that unlimited liability. It changed the whole character of the market. And I think also from there, it was really, I mean, it became a lot cheaper for outsiders to deal, you know, I mean, clients to deal in, in, in stocks and shares. But equally, a lot of the ethos, and I mean that in the best way possible, really disappeared when the banks came in with their money. Okay. Um, it changed completely. And instead of stockbrokers really taking care to look after their customers in the way a doctor would look after his patients, which is the sort of ethos that we had, it then became just a money-making machine. Rip off the client, basically, if you can possibly do it without being noticed. And mm. a lot of this, we went on to what we call single capacity. In other words, a stockbroker could make a market in stocks as well as deal with clients. Before then, you were either a broker acting as an agent on behalf of clients, or you were a stock jobber, in which case you did not deal with members of the public at all. You only dealt with other members of the stock exchange. So that the interests between running a book and looking after your customers were completely segregated. That way, right. I went into managing money for clients. I mean, particularly mutual funds. I ran some mutual funds for a while. I then dealt for mainly institutions, mainly European institutions. And eventually, well, I did a lot of corporate finance on the way. And then eventually, I left London and went to Guernsey to learn about the offshore banking scene. I became a director of a bank there. And when that was taken over, I sort of retired and I came back home and I've been doing economics ever since. And I have to say, that it's the economic theory that I really enjoy now. I've enjoyed the whole of the, whole of the time, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the things I would have done differently, of course. Why don't we go down that path? I would love to hear what, what would you have done differently? What have you learned? And, and perhaps we can take it into how it's applicable today. But what are some of those stories? What did you enjoy from your experience in the markets there? I enjoyed the companionship, the camaraderie. There were some very, very nice people. There were some people who were... I mean, just complete, completely alcoholic, but they were fun. I mean, you know, in those, <laughs> days, in those days, you had to have a pretty tough liver. I think if I, you know, if I did it again, I would probably try and accumulate more money rather than just spend it because we were such a high spending bunch. Mm. You earn easy money. come, easy go. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But we get wise with age, perhaps. So, <laughs> but anyway, it was okay. I mean, there are not too many stories to tell, not that I can think of. Not that I can think of that are repeatable. But I still have <laughs> friends from those days. Most of them have died now, if not through <laughs> cirrhosis or right. whatever. Or I've lost touch with them. But there's still a few people I talk to sort of virtually every week. And that's nice. That is nice. Yeah. And so when you look at this experience and, and what you've seen, I sensed a bit of resentment is the wrong word, but definitely a, a reflection that the banking system is certainly not in favor of those who participate in that system. 
It is there to, to make profits first and foremost. And I've seen that happen in our markets in Canada as well, where much more you're seeing smaller brokerage firms who are who are there to help junior companies formulate capital to pursue ventures are now being eaten up by big banks in, in favor of pushing managed products. And your feed throughout the out the yin yang with those products and ultimately the bank wins and the investor doesn't. Yeah. That's what I'm seeing. But do you have a cynical eye towards the banking system now? And, and that's probably going to evolve into a much larger macroeconomic discussion. But when you look at the banking system now, what do you feel? What do you see? I think I would rather say realistic assessment of the banks rather than a cynical. Okay. Um, cynical implies that I got a grudge against them of some sort. Ah, good point. Good point. Yes. <laughs> I mean, what we have to understand is that banks do not operate as commonly thought as intermediaries between depositors and borrowers. That is the way they appear. But in fact, what they do is they just create credit. They will create a loan on one side of their balance sheet and they'll create deposits on the other side. The two things go together. So they just create money out of thin air. Now, that, I think, under Roman law, if we go way back and so call it the natural law, if you like, that evolved from Roman times, that is fraudulent. Mm. There's no two ways about it. So what we have is a system which is legal, but at least morally, if you like, fraudulent insofar mm. as it just creates money out of thin air. It takes other people's money and uses it for their own disposal on their own objectives. And what permits them to do that? Well, they get a license from the state to do it. Without that license, that is fraud. If you decide to operate yourself as a bank without a license, you end up going to jail. I mean, That's it's right. that. it, it, so, it, Isn't it deemed a Ponzi scheme then? Yeah, absolutely. So why should a bank be permitted to do this? I mean, just because it's got granted an exemption hmm. from law. I mean, it is actually fundamentally corrupt. And that's the system we live with. And this is why you have cycles of bank credit. And what I mean by that is that when bankers are optimistic about economic prospects, then they gear up their balance sheets. They make more and more loans. So they expand both sides of their balance sheet. They create money. It's about nine-tenths of the money in circulation is created by banks rather than the central banks. And there comes a point where this creation process creates risks. And the bankers recognize this. And they get to the point where they see these risks as being too great for, the, for their balance sheet because, you know, at that stage, they have probably got, let's say, a capital of $100 million and they got loans outstanding to the public of $1.5 billion. You know, I mean, you get to 15 to 1, you lose, you know, lose $1 up there, you're going to wipe out 15. Yes. <laughs> but the gearing then starts working negatively as opposed to this wonderful feed of greed, if you like, as you expand your, your balance sheet. And so this leads to almost a sort of sawtooth movement, as it were. You see periods of growing credit expansion suddenly followed by a crisis. And what yeah. happened? You know, instead of diagnosing what the problem is, the central banks, going all the way back to the late 1800s, decided, well, the thing to do is actually to help rescue the banks when you have a credit or a financial crisis without really recognizing the root of this crisis. Sorry, I just want to step in there. Yeah. That, that's an interesting one because 
certainly with perhaps people in my my generation, we see the great financial crisis of 2008 really being one of the, the first times the banks were really bought up by the government or really saved by the government. But it's, according to you, it goes back to the 1800s. And so yeah, this is it, not something new. Well, it started with, I mean, particularly the Bearings crisis, which I think was about 1870s, round about then. I mean, I'm, I'm probably a decade out. What the Bank of England did was it helped arrange for a rescue of Bearings, because if, if Bearings had gone under, then other banks would have gone with it. So the Bank of England helped arrange a rescue. Now, at that stage, the Bank of England didn't deploy its own capital. The government didn't deploy its, its own resources, if you like, to rescue the bank. But that was, if you like, the start of it. And Walter Badgett, who was a, a well-known writer at the time, came up with the definition that the job of a central bank is to be the bank of last resort. You know, So you can see how this system, if you like, uh, began to evolve from there. And of course, the next thing we had was in, 18, in 1912, the American banks got together to form the Fed, which did exactly the same thing. I mean, that was basically why the Fed was there, to ensure that banks, did, commercial banks didn't go bust. <laughs> you know, So it's, right. it's a thing which has gone all the way back. And it's only, well, it's not only recently, but I mean, it's certainly been very marked recently that the central banks have actually had to step in and rescue banks. Yeah, rescue, and then, yeah. and then, yeah, you know, and, and as you're saying that, it also makes me think about what seemed to be a massive crisis back in the '90s, and that was long-term long-term capital management, yeah. if that rings a bell. And that yeah. the implosion of that fund shook the markets. It pales into comparison right now. It's a pimple on a rhino's arse. <laughs> it's yeah. so with that. What's your take on where we're at with our markets now, and with the the current credit situation, and and with respect to the, the audience that we primarily speak to, CEOs and IR pros and entrepreneurs building their businesses, how should we be preparing ourselves? I mean, the current situation, I think, is not at all good. I know that if you listen to central bankers and you listen to mainstream economists, they say that we've got economic recovery and it's all going to turn out all right. And you've got central banks turning around and saying, yes, we are aware that there is going to be a pickup in inflation, by which they mean prices, but it'll be a temporary phenomenon. And Transitory. Yeah, it's transitory. That's the word they use, exactly. That is absolute rubbish, actually. What they don't understand, they threw out something called Say's Law, or at least that's what Keynes did. And we're talking nowadays, everybody's a neo-Keynesian within the system. The point about Say's Law is that it defined how we operate as individuals because we go out to work in order to earn the money to buy the things that we don't manufacture. I'm an economist, okay. I get paid to be an economist. I don't get paid to make the food I eat. So I go to the shops to buy that, you know, and so on. And of course, the more we make specializing in our skills, the more we can, we can acquire as consumers and the more we can save for the uncertainties of the future. So that is says law. In other words, we make something to acquire things, and money is just the bit in between. Now, what the Keynesians have done is they threw that out and said, we don't believe in that anymore, which is the most ridiculous thing that they ever did. But what it did was it allowed them to then create money and produce a role for the state. Because when the economy goes through one of its bank credit cycles, you know, like sort of the banks suddenly decide they're overgeared, so they're withdrawing credit from the economy, and therefore companies start going bust. 
the Keynesian idea, without actually understanding that properly, was, well, the state needs to be able to step in and rescue the economy from itself. What that means, basically, is that the state spends more money than it actually collects in taxes. How does that arise? It arises because money is effectively printed by the central bank. And in doing that, you are debauching the currency. The way this works, as far as, say, law is concerned, is that you're not getting people producing that money. It's the central bank producing that money. So that you've got a limitation on the amount that is being produced relative to the amount of money coming into the economy. Now, we've just gone through lockdowns and everything else and massive unemployment. I mean, it's been, okay, it's been bought off one way or the other. Yes. But if you go around almost anywhere in America, you'll see that retail businesses have all been shut down. I mean, sort of. I want to give you an example there. One of my guests, Peter Thomas, he said to me, he's like, I went to grab a, a coffee this morning. I go by Starbucks in Phoenix, yep. Arizona, or Scottsdale, Arizona, a wealthy part of Arizona and the US. And he says at 11 a.m. in the morning, Starbucks was closing because mm. they had no employees to work. Yeah. Why do they yeah. have no employees? Because the government's giving a handout and mm. there's no incentive to work. So people that's are saying, ah, instead of making 300 bucks more a month, I'll just sit at home. And that's happening in Canada as well. And it's just shocking. Yeah, but it's not just that. The problem for any small business has been that they haven't had the resources to see themselves through a year of no income. Very That's true, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 80% of any economy is small and medium-sized businesses. It's not Ford Motor Company or Walmart or Tesla or JP Morgan or whatever. Those are the very big businesses who we all see. Not only that, but the professional classes – doctors, lawyers, accountants, stockbrokers, and the rest have basically continued to earn money throughout the pandemic. These are the middle classes. Who reads the newspapers? I mean, who, who are the advertisers targeting? It's that lot. And it's very easy to get the impression that actually, once the economy opens again, it's all going to be all right. Mm. But it's not, because as you point out, you don't have the labor. And I mean, I discovered a long time ago that people do not naturally want to go out and work. They have to go out to work in order to earn some money. But if somebody's going to turn around and give them some money, they won't work. It's as simple right. as that. This is what has happened with all the helicopter drops, if you like, into various bank accounts. You know, we found here, for example, I mean, I got a local vintner down the road. He was lucky enough insofar as the warehouse where his wine comes from was also doing PPE imports, you know, all the okay. masks and all the Protective rest of equipment, yeah. Yeah. So the mainstream vintners couldn't get any stock because the warehouses were closed, but he was getting it because his warehouse just happened to be open. Now, we couldn't go into his shop to collect the wine, but I could phone up, I could get a case of wine, and someone from the shop would deliver it. And I was talking to him and I said, presumably you've got quite a lot of people who are queuing up to do this. You know, I mean, it's 10 pounds an hour is what he was paying to do this. And he said, well, funnily enough, yeah, we've got some who'll do it. But the people who I originally asked, you know, who were people in the building trade and all the rest of it, who suddenly had nothing, they're refusing to do it. They mm. wouldn't get the backsides to do it. And this is so human. I'm not a, a delivery driver. I'm a plasterer. You know, you get this sort of immediate block, if you like. Right. The only way it gets unblocked 
is the reality of the situation. You've got to get off your backside and go and earn something. And so we have seen this throughout this pandemic crisis. And the idea that people have gone back to work willingly and are now producing again, now whether it's as a service in the retail industry or whether it's making widgets or something like that, they're not doing it. And then on top of that, you have got complete chaos in the supply chains. And until the first pandemic, the world was operating off just-in-time supply management. Now, that's absolutely great as long as things run. But when things stop run, running, you haven't got anything. Look at the motion industry. You know, they, yes. don't have, they don't have the chips to put in the car. So I want to ask a question that I'm concerned may touch on a bit of conspiracy. But to what degree is the state of the markets and this situation done by design from those in, in power versus just done by their own naivety? Well, let's look at two categories. As far as governments are concerned, central banks is definitely by design. They believe, and there's, there's merit in this belief, that an economy performs best when people are confident in it. And the way in which they develop that confidence is basically to puff up financial asset values so that people feel wealthy, if you like. Their portfolios are rising and all the rest of it. But again, this is just the middle classes. It ignores you know, the guys in the... The, the foundations of our economy. In America, I mean, you know, 25, 30% of people are actually unemployed in America. The fact they're not on the register doesn't actually matter. They're still bloody well unemployed. The poverty in places like San Francisco is just unbelievable. What can one say? Hmm. <laughs> There has been a deliberate policy of puffing up markets. And I mean, I remember Alan Greenspan back in around about 2000, 2001, he made it quite clear that an objective of Fed policy was to ensure a healthy stock market. Why? Because it spread confidence in the economy. And Greenspan, before he went native, as it were, you know, he was effectively an Austrian economist. He was a gold bug. I mean, you know, so you can see how the system will suck in anyone who is otherwise sensible into promoting monetary policies, which actually just don't make any sense at all. Mm. So that's one category. The other category, of course, is the rest of us. And the rest of us, we want to see this. Yeah, we want to see stock markets rising. and all that. So we support it. We don't question it. We want a perpetual bull market. And my first, I mean, you know, as a stockbroker in London, I was always a bit sceptical about the promotion of stocks and all the rest of it. But when I started meeting Americans, you know, American stockbrokers, I mean, they were gung-ho for rising prices all the time. And it was almost like prices stopped rising. Or if you if you recommended caution, I mean, this was treachery. <laughs> it was, it was, I mean, the unevenness of treatment of valuations to me was a real eye-opener. It's the way in those days, I mean, I presume it's the same now, it's the way in those days that American stockbroking worked. And to an extent, we've adopted that over here because we have financial advisors. They are trained by effectively the system. The system is set up by regulators who are the government, if you like, and they tell these financial advisors how to do their job. And Mm. guess what? They're no longer recommending individual shares. They recommend all the time mutual funds. And this started because they were rewarded by the mutual funds if they managed to put their clients into the relevant mutual fund. 
that eventually got jumped down on, you know, and modified and all the rest of it. But still, I mean, you got all these financial advisors going around. I mean, they understand tax to a reasonable degree, but when it comes to understanding investment, they got they're hopeless. They got no idea whatsoever. They don't understand what drives markets. It's beyond their remit. I, I was mean, shocked they, once to have yeah. a, a conversation with a, a stockbroker who couldn't explain a capitalization table to me about it was baffling. And so I hear where you're going. I don't want to paint too much on that, but I hear where you're going there. You know, I just, I'm sorry to interject here, but I I do want to be respectful of your time. I want to ask you a couple of questions about the world of gold and the world of precious metals, as I know that that's where your time is very much focused. One thing that we, we spoke a bit about was some regulatory changes. And as I understand, the name is, is Basel III to be introduced. And this is going to have impacts on the liquidity of the gold and silver markets. What's there? What do we have to know? Well, this has been in the works for some time. Following the great financial crisis, when Lehman fell over, the regulators got together, the G20 got together, and they came up with a number of things to do. One of them was to stop bailouts and encourage bail-ins, which basically meant that bondholders and all the rest of it would pay for a bank rescue, which, of course, is complete rubbish because once a bank falls over, you know, if the bondholders are wiped out, they're going to sell every bank bond there is in they own. So they immediately create the crisis elsewhere. I mean, this is just mm. naive, completely naive. That was the first thing. But the other, perhaps more important thing, was the Bank of International Settlements set about trying to remove the counterparty risk between banks, or if not remove it, at least contain it in such a way that if bank A goes bust, it doesn't wipe out bank B, bank C, bank D, and so on and so forth. So they're trying to address that domino effect. And the principal way in which they were doing it was to ensure that long-term liabilities funded long-term assets. Short-term liabilities, funded short-term assets, and so on. And they also tried to de-risk the system by changing the classifications of bank liabilities when it comes to funding the other side of the balance sheet. Now, this was this is Basel III. Now, the, with respect to derivatives, which is really what you're asking about, the original consultation paper, there was a document which they put together, they came out with something called a net stable funding ratio. The original document was sent out for comment in the spring of 2014. By October 2014, they had actually set the framework for this net stable funding ratio. You know, I mean, this is seven years ago now. Mm. Its introduction has been delayed, but finally it is going to happen. What it means is that If you have, as a bank, if you have a gold derivative liability, in other words, you have customers who have gold accounts, unallocated gold accounts, because allocated gold is not on your balance sheet. It is always off balance sheet. It is custody gold. It's unallocated gold, which is on your balance sheet. So if you've got liabilities to customers, unallocated gold, you cannot use that to fund any of your asset positions on the other side of the balance sheet. Okay. So that removes the reason for having having it, if you like, having that source of, of balance sheet funding. On the other side, if you have cash, for example, on your balance sheet as an asset, you don't need to allocate any of your liability funding to fund it. That's absolutely fine. Cash is cash is cash. That's great. When it comes to unallocated gold positions, however, 
you need to take from the other side an 85% cover to fund that asset. So this means that you've got to find the other 15% from somewhere else, probably your equity or something like that. In other words, you have a balance sheet disadvantage on both sides, your liabilities to your customers with your unallocated accounts, and also the way in which you fund unallocated accounts which show as an asset on the other side of the balance sheet. And this fundamentally interferes with running positions in the market. So what it means basically is that the banks who are members of the London Bullion Market Association are going to be shutting down their books ahead of this coming into play. As far as the European banks are concerned, these regulations are going to apply from the end of June. In other words, within five weeks, four and a bit weeks. And when it comes to the UK, these regulations are going to come in on the 1st of January 2022, which basically is the end of this calendar year. Now, you know, banks don't wait until the last moment to address an issue like this. They will be closing down their positions in the London bullion market, unallocated positions. Unallocated gold, incidentally, doesn't exist. It is, if you like, balance sheet assets which are tied to the price of gold, but it is not gold. It's another IOU. It's another IOU. Exactly that. And in fact, the LBMA were asked to comment by the PRA, the Prudential Regulatory, whatever it's called, our bank regulator. They were asked to comment on this. And they wrote a commentary as if unallocated gold actually is gold. It's completely wrong. It's, It's a myth. I mean, this is being more than economical with the truth. I mean, it really is. It is misleading. Mm. I can tell you that the Bank of International Settlements do understand what the unallocated gold market is. They do understand that they're talking derivatives. Right. So London is going to be shut down at the end of this calendar year. And it also means that the people who operate in the swap as the swaps category on COMEX, who are basically the London crowd, they're going to be closing their books as well. So effectively, the derivative markets are going to contract from, I mean, I suppose, you know, sort of if you look at one side of it in terms of supply, we're talking about around about 300, 280, maybe 300 billion dollars worth on the OTC market. And we're talking about a further sort of 40, 50 billion net. No, it's less than that. It's about 40 billion net on COMEX. Put these things two together, these two together, that is the supply, the synthetic supply that's going to be withdrawn from the market. So is this another, you know, is this a reflection of what seems to be retail investors' favorite term now, another short squeeze? Yeah. I mean, the squeeze is on the bullion banks because they can't close their positions. I mean, we, we only see the positions on COMEX, but I do know that the liquidity in London is very, very little. Hmm. So, I mean, the, the story which had been sort of pushed out by the apologists for the system is that banks are long in London and they're hedging the position by going short on COMEX. That's rubbish. I mean, it hasn't been like that for some considerable time. It's been out and out speculation. I mean, it's just been something which bullion banks have as a source of revenue. And that is that they work together, they can bash the market, take the stops out, kill the hedge funds, get their positions back, and then do it all again. I mean, you know, it's been a profitable cycle of events, which they've been doing time and time again. They do it literally four times a year at least. 
that's going to stop. And so that supply is going to be withdrawn from the market. Now, when you get a letter from your bullion bank that says, sorry, mate, we're closing your account. Here is the balance. Piss off. Uh, then <laughs> um, Some of these people are going to be upset thinking that they actually had gold exposure. No, right. they didn't. So what do they do? They're going to have to, if they want to have gold exposure, they're going to have to go into the market and acquire some physical. And that's going to drive the price up because there is very little physical liquidity. Yeah, I mean, this kind of brings us back to the the whole the issue of fiat currency in the sense that it's just another IOU of sorts, which is not backed. And here, I thought I had physical gold. No, no, yeah. no, no. It was unallocated. So it's not gold at all. <laughs> Wow. Okay. I'm looking at time again. I want to, um, how are you for time? You probably have to go well, soon. Yeah, probably do another five or 10 minutes. Shall we? All right. All right. Well, let's, let's see. I don't want to bore your audience. <laughs> no, my God, Alistair, I'm, I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying this conversation. For me, it's opening my mind in, in many new ways. So let's talk about something you recently published in Gold Money, where you do a lot of writing and research for that interest rates you see and believe are going to start to rise. And where I'd like to potentially steer your answer, not steer it, but your address to is how can businesses and companies be prepared for this and what should they be aware of? Well, the first thing I think to recognize is that financial assets are wildly overvalued. So I'd look very carefully at what financial assets you might have on your balance sheet. I think that's that's the first thing. Okay. The other thing to think about is that as a company, you probably have pension liabilities. Where are those liabilities invested? How exposed are them to potentially a crash in financial asset values? Look at ways in which you might be able to insure against that. I think those are two things. Now, the background to what I think is happening is, well, in that article, which I've just published today, so if you go to Gold Money, Research, Insights, You'll find that article today, and I can't remember what I called it, but it's anyway. It'll come to me in a moment. In a moment. Okay, that's what. But anyway, it's the latest article up there. I published with it three charts, which I think are important in this. The first is of the yield on the ten-year U.S. Treasuries. Now, that yield bottomed at just under half a percent on the tenth of March, I think it was, twenty twenty. And it ran up to a high of 1.7%. It's backed off from there. It's something like 1.55, something like that at the moment. Now, that initial rise, if you like, has been accompanied with a rise in the S&P of around about 90%. That actually turned slightly after the yield on the US Treasury started increasing. Now, the reason this relationship is important is that if you look at the history of credit cycles, then you find that interest rates start rising first, which basically means a bear market develops in bonds, and we're talking about government bonds in this case. And in the first phase of that rise, you find that equity markets uh, boom. I mean, they they really do. And this is exactly what we've seen. Now, the reason for this is that at that time, fears of inflation and all the rest of it are very low. There is more credit, the more money going into the economy. Okay, bank yields are, you know, sorry, bond yields are rising a bit. But this, if you like, is taken in the equity markets as an expression of confidence. But it is, in fact, the last run of the market. And a second chart, which I include in that article, is of the borrowing, if you like, speculators borrowing 
going along at the market. And that is a fascinating chart. I mean, it's gone off, I mean, off piste completely. People are borrowing so much money to finance equity positions in the market. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. It's tripled since the last crisis, last financial crisis. I mean, mm. we're running at a bit under $800 billion of leveraged bets in the market. And I'm not talking options. I'm talking about people who have borrowed money to go and buy stock. Yes. So that's the second thing. Now, the third thing is probably the most important, and that is chart of the, the US dollars trade-weighted index. During the Obama presidency, that declined. Under Trump, it recovered and went up to about 103. And under Biden, it has really gone all the way back down to the lows we saw in the final days of the Obama presidency. Just for context, can you expand on that, on this concept a bit more, a little bit more context for us? Yeah, well, basically what we're talking about is the purchasing power of the dollar relative to the purchasing power of other currencies. In the case of the trade-weighted index, it's actually quite heavily weighted in favor of the euro because the eurozone is the biggest block, you know, trading block of the lot in terms of currency. So if we see the euro go higher against the dollar, it does have more of an impact on the dollar's trade weighted than any other currency. So that you need to bear in mind. Now, the other thing you need to know is that the current foreign ownership of dollar financial assets and bank deposits is $30 trillion, mm. one and a half times US GDP. This is extraordinary. Mm. Break that down into governments and private sector. Governments, in other words, other central banks who have dollars and US treasuries as part of their, their reserves, that's $8 trillion. The private sector is $22 trillion. Wow. They are hugely overweight dollars. Now, they're seeing the dollar go down. The dollar has lost roughly 12% from its top. The portfolio investment element of that is $10.7 trillion. So $10.7 trillion worth has got there by an increase in portfolio valuations purely through equities. Because remember, the S&P has gone up something like 90% since March 2020. 2020, yeah. Yeah. So they've got huge profits sitting there. Now we see the situation of a shortage of production, supply chain disruption, the whole situation leading to rising prices on the high street. We've already seen commodity prices. I mean, lumber is famous, for example, but not just lumber. You've got copper. You've got all the foodstuffs. Prices have been increasing. That's going to feed through as well. You've yeah. got a lack of production because nobody really wants to work, as we were discussing earlier. What's going to happen to price? They are going to go up. So what happens to interest rates unless the Fed changes its view that it can hold it at zero until whenever. Yeah. And don't worry about inflation. It's 2%, 2%, 2%. is absolute rubbish. Sooner or later, the foreigners on their 22 trillion are going to be saying, hold on a minute. This is not a good idea holding all these dollars we do not need. Right. So where do they go? Now, two places. The obvious one is the euro. Now, why the euro? Because the euro has got to raise interest rates not from zero, but from minus 0.4.5%. So the rise in interest rates in the euro is going to be greater, if you like, in real terms than it possibly can be, or certainly in the initial stages, than you're going to see in America. So what do you do? I mean, if you're short euros, long dollar, it's quite clear. Reverse it. Mm. 
you're just long dollars, just get the hell out of dollars and put it into, into euros for the moment sort of yep. thing. Now, the second thing, second thing, oh, on the euro, bear in mind that the boom in terms of demand looks like being the greatest they have seen for the last 15 years. The effect on prices is going to be at least as great as it is in America. Mm. Could even be more. Okay, so this is what you've got to bear in mind. The other currency is the Chinese yuan. Now, guess what the Chinese are doing? The Chinese have been stifling credit expansion. Remember, they control the banks. I mean, like they own the banks. Yes. Uh, the banks are listed. Yeah, fine. But actually, it's part of the CCP. The government is the largest shareholder in them all, and they tell these banks what to do. What they have been doing is they've been contracting credit. In other words, officially, they're concerned about the rate of inflation. They don't want that to get out of control. Okay. So they are ahead of the curve compared with other central banks. But I think there is another reason for this, and that is that they no longer really need the dollar as the international currency. They can see that the dollar is destroying commodity markets in the sense that commodity prices are rising measured in dollar terms. How do you get around that? Well, the answer is get your currency rising along with the commodities. It's as simple as that. Mm. But this is such an unfashionable view because, you know, you start worrying about things like, uh, oh, what's going to happen to the trade, uh, the trade position and all the rest of it? Well, I mean, the answer is quite simple. They don't have a trade problem. They have got trade surpluses. The Americans are going to jump down on them anyway. The Americans have been trying to kill China through destabilizing Hong Kong. The Chinese aren't stupid. They know what the, the motivation is. Yeah, they know is. what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. But guess what? The Chinese don't want their economy to boom. But what they do want is they want to import capital to invest in infrastructure. I mean, you've got the Silk Roads and all the rest of it. So what do they do? They make the currency attractive. And so capital funds leaving America have immediately got a home back in China. Right. And that is what's going to happen. Okay, so you can see how the dollar situation is actually getting very, very serious. What can the Fed do to stop the dollar sliding? Well, the answer is they have to raise interest rates soon and by quite a lot. And because of the way inflation is going, when I say quite a lot, well, John Williams of Shadowstats, he was interviewed by Greg Hunter at usawatchdog.com earlier this week. And he said the true rate of inflation in America is running at over 11%. Mm. Where's this 2%? The 2% is a, is a completely fictitious figure. Yeah. So yeah. you can see the gap, if you like, that is rising between what the Fed story is and reality. So what's going to happen? I mean, we're going to have a dollar crisis. It's as simple as that. And the foreigners are the first people who are going to bail out. Right. We have a problem now because they have been using the dollar, printing dollars at the rate of 120 billion a month to puff up financial asset values. Now, as the water runs out, foreigners selling, they're going to have to print more money in order to keep the bubble going. So what we have is a situation which was first discovered by John Law in France back in 1720, when he kept the Mississippi bubble going by printing money. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bubble yeah. collapsed. The bubble collapsed. And his livre, which was unbacked, collapsed. We have exactly the same situation today, but instead of being limited to France, it is global because wow. we all have our currencies tied to the dollar. That is the reserve currency. Dollar goes, we all go. I really like your references to, to history. 
I mean, I find it fascinating. So, so I just wanted to interject with that, but yeah. please conclude. Well, you know, I've looked at the sort of the historic various examples. I mean, the obvious other comparison which people make is Central European currencies after the First World War, of which obviously the famous and best documented one was the collapse of Germany's paper market. But I think this is a fundamentally different situation. It, it's come about because, going back to what Greenspan said at the beginning of this millennium, you know, we need a good, strong stock market because that makes people confident. That is number one priority. Right. And, but it, it's, we're coming to an end of it. So talking to your corporate clients, you've got to understand that this big picture is actually a very, very serious issue. Now, I can't tell people how to really protect themselves, but I think the first thing they ought to do is, as I say, just look and think very carefully about your exposure to financial assets. Financial dollar assets, don't stop at your own balance sheet, but look at your pension fund liabilities as well. Thanks for the, the thorough explanation there. I really enjoyed it. I know we're pushing against time. As a final question, I, I do like to ask this of all the guests is what books are you reading? Where do you find your information? What's been most influential for you? I tend not to read other economists' books. I am actually reading one for someone I, I won't mention because I've been asked to critique it from an economist's point of view. But I mean, if you really want to know, I'm reading Roman History of England. <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. What are you learning? That's cool. It's really from the first invasion. When Caesar invaded this country in about 50, 56 BC, a year before Et Tu Brute, Ides of March and all that stuff. And then Claudius, sort of about a century later, followed it up. And the Romans were here for a good 400 years. So it is interesting. And when I go up and see my eldest son, one of the roads I use is the Foss Way, which was actually a Roman road, mm. you know, and it's still there. Yeah. It's tarred over. It's not, you know, yeah, yeah, right. it's not cobbled or anything. But I so, say, you know, that's the sort of thing which I relax with rather than economics books. Yeah. I, I use them for reference. I use economics books for reference, but that's, that's about it. I just want to reflect on a podcast I listened to by a gentleman named Dan Carlson. He always purports to not be a historian. He just tells the stories of what was history and reflects about the, the 15th century in and around Germany and the fall of the Roman Empire, when it basically went from, hey, you were part of the Roman Empire to, hey, sorry, lights are out. We're not here for you anymore. You guys figure it out. Goodbye. And well, the, yeah. the ensuing turmoil that came from that and, and how the, the, the Catholic Church played into it and the yeah. Lutherans and on and on and on. Fascinating history. Yeah. Well, in addition to that, I mean, the Roman Empire basically took a long time to decline, but things can decline very quickly. And what's interesting is that I think it was on the 8th of November, 1989, if you were in East Berlin and you wanted to get into West Berlin, you got shot. The following day, you just walked through. Now, okay, we all think that that was, you know, it was the fall of the Berlin Wall and all the rest of it. But actually what happened was we had an economic collapse. I mean, that was really what it was. Same thing if going back to the storming of the Bastille in the 17, what, 1783, 1784 in, in Paris. I mean, that was driven by monetary collapse because the, the government of the day had introduced these new currency, the Assignat, which was meant to be secured on church property, which had been confiscated by the state. The Assignat effectively went into hyperinflation, let's put it in those terms. And this, of course, created hardship and a revolution. Mm. I mean, was the, you know, the historians don't understand economics. 
They are appalling at it. They just don't understand it. They think that things happen for purely political reasons. No, they don't. Economics is usually behind it. And understand that, and you can understand how quickly things can change. Right. Just look at the fall of the Berlin Wall as an economic event, not as a political event. Then rise open about how sudden these things can be. And I suspect that the collapse of the dollar is going to be a fairly sudden event, because once it starts going, I mean, there'll be just a double take. You've either got gold or you haven't at that stage, and I'm talking physical gold. If you haven't got it, how can you buy it when it's suddenly leaping up by the $1,000? I mean, what do you do? Right. Oh, I'll wait for it to come back. I mean, this is just ridiculous. Yes. Ain't going to happen. Yes. You've missed it. Alistair, this has been a fantastic conversation. I mean, I think it's so interesting from salmon fisherman to stockbroker to now economist and and somewhat historian. I very much enjoyed my time. So thank you. That was very much my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.